Section 1 of Chapter 16 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 16, Section 1. William had been, during the whole spring, impatiently expected in Ulster. The Protestant settlements along the coast of that province had, in the course of the month of May, been repeatedly agitated by false reports of his arrival. It was not, however, till the afternoon of the 14th of June that he landed at Carrickfergus. The inhabitants of the town crowded the main street and greeted him with loud acclamations, but they caught only a glimpse of him. As soon as he was on dry ground, he mounted and set off for Belfast. On the road he was met by Schomberg. The meeting took place close to a white house, the only human dwelling then visible, in the space of many miles, on the dreary strand of the estuary of the Lagan. A village and a cotton mill now rise where the white house then stood alone, and all the shore is adorned by a gay succession of country houses, shrubberies, and flower-beds. Belfast has become one of the greatest and most flourishing seats of industry in the British Isles. A busy population of eighty thousand souls is collected there. The duties annually paid at the Custom House exceed the duties annually paid at the Custom House of London in the most prosperous years of the reign of Charles the Second. Other Irish towns may present more picturesque forms to the eye, but Belfast is the only large Irish town in which the traveller is not disgusted by the loathsome aspect and odour of long lines of human dens far inferior in comfort and cleanliness to the dwellings which, in happier countries, are provided for cattle— no other large Irish town is so well cleaned, so well paved, so brilliantly lighted. The place of domes and spires is supplied by edifices, less pleasing to the taste, but not less indicative of prosperity. Huge factories, towering many stories above the chimneys of the houses, and resounding with the roar of machinery. The Belfast, which William entered, was a small English settlement of about three hundred houses, commanded by a stately castle which has long disappeared, the seat of the noble family of Chichester. In this mansion, which is said to have borne some resemblance to the palace of Whitehall, and which was celebrated for its terraces and orchards stretching down to the riverside, preparations had been made for the king's reception. He was welcomed at the northern gate by the magistrates and burgesses in their robes of office. The multitude pressed on his carriage with shouts of, "'God save the Protestant king!' for the town was one of the strongholds of the Reformed faith, and when two generations later the inhabitants were, for the first time, numbered, it was found that the Roman Catholics were not more than one in fifteen. The night came, but the Protestant counties were awake and up. The royal salute had been fired from the castle of Belfast. It had been echoed and re-echoed by guns which Schomberg had placed at wide intervals, for the purpose of conveying signals from post to post. Wherever the peal was heard, it was known that King William was come. Before midnight, all the heights of Antrim and Down were blazing with bonfires. The light was seen across the bays of Carlingford and Dundalk, and gave notice to the outposts of the enemy that the decisive hour was at hand. Within forty-eight hours after William had landed, James set out from Dublin for the Irish camp, which was pitched near the northern frontier of Leinster. In Dublin the agitation was fearful. None could doubt that the decisive crisis was approaching, and the agony of suspense stimulated to the highest point the passions of both the hostile castes. The majority could easily detect, in the looks and tones of the oppressed minority, 
signs which indicated the hope of a speedy deliverance and of a terrible revenge. Simon Luttrell, to whom the care of the capital was entrusted, hastened to take such precautions as fear and hatred dictated. A proclamation appeared, enjoining all Protestants to remain in their homes from nightfall to dawn, and prohibiting them on pain of death from assembling in any place or for any purpose to the number of more than five. No indulgence was granted even to those divines of the established church who had never ceased to teach the doctrine of non-resistance. Dr. William King, who had, after long holding out, lately begun to waver in his political creed, was committed to custody. There was no jail large enough to hold one half of those whom the governor suspected of evil designs. The college and several parish churches were used as prisons, and into those buildings men accused of no crime but their religion were crowded in such numbers that they could hardly breathe. The two rival princes, meanwhile, were busied in collecting their forces. Lowbrookland was the place appointed by William for the rendezvous of the scattered divisions of his army. While the troops were assembling, he exerted himself indefatigably to improve their discipline and to provide for their subsistence. He had brought from England two hundred thousand pounds in money and a great quantity of ammunition and provisions. Pillaging was prohibited under severe penalties. At the same time supplies were liberally dispensed, and all the paymasters of regiments were directed to send in their accounts without delay, in order that there might be no arrears. Thomas Coningsby, member of Parliament for Leominster, a busy and unscrupulous Whig, accompanied the King, and acted as paymaster-general. It deserves to be mentioned that William at this time authorized the collector of customs at Belfast to pay every year twelve hundred pounds into the hands of some of the principal dissenting ministers of Down and Antrim, who were to be trustees for their brethren. The king declared that he bestowed this sum on the nonconformist divines, partly as a reward for their eminent loyalty to him, and partly as a compensation for their recent losses. Such was the origin of that donation which is still annually bestowed by the government on the Presbyterian clergy of Ulster. William was all himself again. His spirits, depressed by eighteen months passed in dull state amidst factions and intrigues which he but half understood, rose high as soon as he was surrounded by tents and standards. It was strange to see how rapidly this man, so unpopular at Westminster, obtained a complete mastery over the hearts of his brethren-in-arms. They observed with delight that, infirm as he was, he took his share of every hardship which they underwent, that he thought more of their comfort than of his own, that he sharply reprimanded some officers who were so anxious to procure luxuries for his table as to forget the wants of the common soldiers, that he never once, from the day on which he took the field, lodged in a house, but even in the neighbourhood of cities and palaces, slept in his small movable hut of wood, that no solicitations could induce him, on a hot day and in a high wind, to move out of the choking cloud of dust, which overhung the line of march, and which severely tried lungs less delicate than his. Every man under his command became familiar with his looks and his voice, for there was not a regiment which he did not inspect with minute attention. His pleasant looks and sayings were long remembered. One brave soldier has recorded in his journal the kind and courteous manner in which a basket of the first cherries of the year was accepted from him by the king and the sprightliness with which His Majesty conversed at supper with those who stood round the table. On the 24th of June, the tenth day after William's landing, he marched southward from Lowbrookland with all his forces. He was fully determined to take the first opportunity of fighting. Schomberg and some other officers recommended caution and delay, 
but the king answered that he had not come to Ireland to let the grass grow under his feet. The event seems to prove that he judged rightly as a general. That he judged rightly as a statesman cannot be doubted. He knew that the English nation was discontented with the way in which the war had hitherto been conducted, that nothing but rapid and splendid success could revive the enthusiasm of his friends and quell the spirit of his enemies, and that a defeat could scarcely be more injurious to his fame and to his interests than a languid and indecisive campaign. The country through which he advanced had, during eighteen months, been fearfully wasted both by soldiers and by rapparees. The cattle had been slaughtered, the plantations had been cut down, the fences and houses were in ruins. Not a human being was to be found near the road, except a few naked and meagre wretches who had no food but the husks of oats, and who were seen picking those husks like chickens from amidst dust and cinders. Yet even under such disadvantages, the natural fertility of the country, the rich green of the earth, the bays and rivers so admirably fitted for trade, could not but strike the king's observant eye. Perhaps he thought how different an aspect that unhappy region would have presented if it had been blessed with such a government and such a religion as had made his native Holland the wonder of the world. How endless a succession of pleasure-houses, tulip-gardens, and dairy-farms would have lined the road from Lisburn to Belfast! How many hundreds of barges would have been constantly passing up and down the lagoon! What a forest of masts would have bristled in the desolate port of Newry! What vast warehouses and stately mansions would have covered the space occupied by the noisome alleys of Dundalk? The country, he was heard to say, is worth fighting for. The original intention of James seems to have been to try the chances of a pitched field on the border between Leinster and Ulster. But this design was abandoned, in consequence, apparently, of the representations of Lausanne, who, though very little disposed and very little qualified to conduct a campaign on the Fabian system, had the admonitions of Louvois still in his ears. James, though resolved not to give up Dublin without a battle, consented to retreat till he should reach some spot where he might have the vantage of ground. When, therefore, William's advanced guard reached Dundalk, nothing was to be seen of the Irish army, except a great cloud of dust which was slowly rolling southwards towards Ardy. The English halted one night near the ground on which Schomberg's camp had been pitched in the preceding year and many sad recollections were awakened by the sight of that dreary marsh, the sepulchre of thousands of brave men. Still William continued to push forward, and still the Irish receded before him, till on the morning of Monday the 30th of June, his army, marching in three columns, reached the summit of a rising ground near the southern frontier of the county of Louth. Beneath lay a valley, now so rich and so cheerful that the Englishman who gazes on it may imagine himself to be in one of the most highly favoured parts of his own highly favoured country. Fields of wheat, woodlands, meadows bright with daisies and clover, slope gently down to the edge of the Boyne. That bright and tranquil stream, the boundary of Louth and Meath, having flowed many miles between verdant banks crowned by modern palaces, and by the ruined keeps of old Norman barons of the Pale, is here about to mingle with the sea. Five miles to the west of the place from which William looked down on the river, now stands on a verdant bank, amidst noble woods, Slane Castle, the mansion of the Marquis of Conningham. Two miles to the east, a cloud of smoke from factories and steam vessels overhangs the busy town and port of Drogheda. On the Meath side of the Boyne, 
the ground, still all corn, grass, flowers, and foliage, rises with a gentle swell to an eminence surmounted by a conspicuous tuft of ash-trees, which overshades the ruined church and desolate graveyard of Donore. In the seventeenth century the landscape presented a very different aspect. The traces of art and industry were few. Scarcely a vessel was on the river except those rude coracles of wicker-work, covered with the skins of horses, in which the Celtic peasantry fished for trout and salmon. Drogheda, now peopled by twenty thousand industrious inhabitants, was a small knot of narrow, crooked, and filthy lanes, encircled by a ditch and a mound. The houses were built of wood with high gables and projecting upper stories. Without the walls of a town, scarcely a dwelling was to be seen except at a place called Oldbridge. At Oldbridge the river was fordable, and on the south of the ford there were a few mud cabins and a single house built of more solid materials. When William caught sight of the valley of the Boyne, he could not suppress an exclamation and a gesture of delight. He had been apprehensive that the enemy would avoid a decisive action, and would protract the war till the autumnal rains should return with pestilence in their train. He was now at ease. It was plain that the contest would be sharp and short. The pavilion of James was pitched on the eminence of Donor. The flags of the House of Stuart and the House of Bourbon waved together in defiance on the walls of Drogheda. All the southern bank of the river was lined by the camp and batteries of the hostile army. Thousands of armed men were moving about the tents, and every one, horse-soldier or foot-soldier, French or Irish, had a white badge in his hat. That colour had been chosen in compliment to the House of Bourbon. "'I am glad to see you, gentlemen,' said the king, as his keen eyes surveyed the Irish lines. "'If you escape me now, the fault will be mine.' Each of the contending princes had some advantage over his rival. James, standing on the defensive, behind entrenchments, with a river before him, had the stronger position. But his troops were inferior both in number and in quality to those which were opposed to him. He probably had thirty thousand men. About a third part of this force consisted of excellent French infantry and excellent Irish cavalry. But the rest of his army was the scoff of all Europe. The Irish dragoons were bad the Irish infantry worse. It was said that their ordinary way of fighting was to discharge their pieces once, and then to run away bawling quarter and murder. Their inefficiency was, in that age, commonly imputed, both by their enemies and by their allies, to natural poltroonery. How little ground there was for such an imputation has since been signally proved by many heroic achievements in every part of the globe. It ought, indeed, even in the seventeenth century, to have occurred to reasonable men— that a race which furnished some of the best horse-soldiers in the world would certainly, with judicious training, furnish good foot-soldiers. But the Irish foot-soldiers had not merely not been well-trained, they had been elaborately ill-trained. The greatest of our generals repeatedly and emphatically declared that even the admirable army which fought its way under his command, from Torres Vedras to Toulouse, would, if he had suffered it to contract habits of pillage, have become in a few weeks unfit for all military purposes. What, then, was likely to be the character of troops who, from the day on which they were enlisted, were not merely permitted, but invited, to supply the deficiencies of pay by marauding? They were, as might have been expected, a mere mob, furious indeed and clamorous in their zeal for the cause which they had espoused, but incapable of opposing a steadfast resistance to a well-ordered force." 
In truth, all that the discipline, if it is to be so called, of James's army had done for the Celtic kern had been to debase and enervate him. After eighteen months of nominal soldiership, he was positively farther from being a soldier than on the day on which he quitted his hovel for the camp. William had under his command near thirty-six thousand men, born in many lands and speaking many tongues. Scarcely one Protestant church, scarcely one Protestant nation, was unrepresented in the army which a strange series of events had brought to fight for the Protestant religion in the remotest island of the West. About half the troops were natives of England. Ormond was there with the lifeguards, and Oxford with the blues. Sir John Lanier, an officer who had acquired military experience on the continent, and whose prudence was held in high esteem, was at the head of the Queen's Regiment of Horse, now the First Dragoon Guards. There were Beaumont's foot, who had, in defiance of the mandate of James, refused to admit Irish Papists among them, and Hastings' foot, who had, on the disastrous day of Killiecrankie, maintained the military reputation of the Saxon race. There were the two Tangier battalions, hitherto known only by deeds of violence and rapine, but destined to begin on the following morning a long career of glory. The Scotch guards marched under the command of their countryman James Douglas. Two fine British regiments, which had been in the service of the States General, and had often looked death in the face under William's leading, followed him in this campaign, not only as their general, but as their native king. They now rank as the fifth and sixth of the line. The former was led by an officer who had no skill in the higher parts of military science, but whom the whole army allowed to be the bravest of all the brave, John Cutts. Conspicuous among the Dutch troops were Portland's and Ginkle's horse, and Solmes's blue regiment, consisting of two thousand of the finest infantry in Europe. Germany had sent to the field some warriors, sprung from her noblest houses. Prince George of Hesse-Darmstadt, a gallant youth who was serving his apprenticeship in the military art, rode near the king. A strong brigade of Danish mercenaries was commanded by Duke Charles Frederick of Württemberg, a near kinsman of the head of his illustrious family. It was reported that, of all the soldiers of William, these were the most dreaded by the Irish— for centuries of Saxon domination had not effaced the recollection of the violence and cruelty of the Scandinavian sea-kings. And an ancient prophecy that the Danes would one day destroy the children of the soil was still repeated with superstitious horror. Among the foreign auxiliaries were a Brandenburg regiment and a Finland regiment. But in that great array, so variously composed, were two bodies of men animated by a spirit peculiarly fierce and implacable, the Huguenots of France thirsting for the blood of the French, and the Englishry of Ireland impatient to trample down the Irish. The ranks of the refugees had been effectually purged of spies and traitors, and were made up of men such as had contended in the preceding century against the power of the House of Valois and the genius of the House of Lorraine. All the boldest spirits of the unconquerable colony had repaired to William's camp, Mitchelburn was there with the stubborn defenders of Londonderry, and Wolseley with the warriors who had raged the unanimous shout of advance on the day of Newton Butler. Sir Albert Cunningham, the ancestor of the noble family whose seat now overlooks the Boyne, had brought from the neighbourhood of Loch Erne a gallant regiment of dragoons, which still glories in the name of Enniskillen, and which has proved on the shores of the Euxine that it has not degenerated since the day of the Boyne. End of section 1